Welcome to episode three of In the Arena, the Jonathan Mosen story. I'm Glenn Gordon. So when you guys got together, you were in university or you were about to be in university? Yeah, she was a year ahead of me. So I had just finished high school and I was about to start university. So we were going to the same university. And what did you decide to major in, or did you know at that point? Yeah, I decided to major in history and political science. They call it political studies at that university. Because when I was at school, at high school, I had topped the country in history, of all things. And that had got in the paper and everything, I think partly because I was blind and topping the country, and I had a bit of a profile. So... Everybody said, well, you should go and do your PhD in history. And I, I love history. I, th- I think it's really important to understand where we've come from so we know where we're going. And I'm a major political animal. I was involved, you know, the moment I could vote, uh, which was when I was 18 in 1987, I began working for a political party, manning the phones and getting out there on election day and, and getting getting people to vote and things like that. So I've always been very politically active. I would go to political meetings and do a bit of stirring, a bit of heckling. Uh, So political science seemed like a natural thing as well. Where did you, at at that point, right, this this was largely before uh, the world of being connected, right? Mm. You, you, there wasn't a whole lot besides radio that was accessible to you in terms of understanding politics and knowing what was going on. Is that is that accurate? It is. I would pester my sighted siblings to read the newspapers to me sometimes, but yes, that that is largely accurate. Yeah. With hindsight, did you find that the history poli sci combination helped in in later life, or was it just sort of a jog? Well, <laughs> it, it, it's hard to know. <laughs> um, I suppose it helped, given my government relations role that I ultimately did. Yes. And I think it also helps you to understand processes and people. In the end, if you're going to make a success of life, you have to understand how people tick, the kind of factors that that are at play, and also systems, you know, the systems that could be a barrier or a benefit. So yes, I suppose it was beneficial. What were the logistics for you? Writing papers, getting them typed up, doing research? What were, what were some of the techniques you used for that? Well, I was very lucky because I had been identified as somebody who naturally took to technology. And I know we'll talk a lot about this. So even in high school, I was using a Versa Braille. By the time I went to university, I was using the original Keynote, which I had been given. And so I would go and take my notes on the Keynote which was kind of like a portable laptop type thing with a QWERTY keyboard and store them on a bevy of floppy disks. And then when I wanted to do essays, I could just um, do them in the Keynote word processor and print them out. So I was really lucky that I was just at the point where the whole idea of having to record your lectures and um, Braille notes later was no longer necessary. What did getting a Versa Braille do Uh, in terms of your ability to write and compose and be creative? It was a real significant moment for me because I was a horrible typist. The way it used to work was you had your Perkins Brailler. That was the first kind of major badge of honor at the School for the Blind when you got to the point that you got presented with your own Perkins Brailler. And man, they were really quiet when you first got them. <laughs> Mine was never quiet. Mine was really quiet. Okay. I soon sort of started making it making enough clatter like everybody else. And then what would happen is they'd teach you to type. I remember being sent away to Mrs. Bailey, the typing teacher. When you got to a certain point of proficiency, you were supposed to be given your own typewriter in the classroom. And most of the other kids already had theirs and they were holding off on giving me mine because they said your typing's too inaccurate. And so I eventually, I think they eventually had to relent and give me the the typewriter in the classroom. But I would often kind of transpose letters and stuff like that. And um, of course, there was no way of me reviewing my work and determining that I had done this. So it was a hard thing to correct because you couldn't see what you were doing. 
So when the VersaBrow came along, it was a real game changer for me because suddenly not only could I braille into the device, but I could actually review what I had written before I handed it in. Uh, and that was just a revolution for me. I think many of us of that era will remember the frustration of writing out a two or three page essay on your typewriter, handing it in, only to be told that the ribbon had run out and you hadn't typed anything. <laughs> and the Versa yeah. Braille was pretty primitive, right? I mean, it was it was not what word processing has become. No, but obviously for its time, the idea that you could have a whole lot of documents stored on a cassette, every time you loaded a document from the cassette that the VersaBrail had in it, it almost felt like the thing was going to shatter itself to smithereens, you know, loading yes. the document. But it worked, you know. Um, I got pinged there too, though, because doing a bit of research, how did I find this out? I think it might have been through one of those newsletters like – um raise.computing, or I used to get a few of those on cassette sent to me. Anyway, I found out there was an audio overlay, and I got hold of the audio overlay and worked out that you could turn the VersaBraille into a tape machine as well with a kind of a variable speed control. So one day we were in economics, and the teacher went out on some sort of errand, and I put in the new Genesis Invisible Touch album into the VersaBraille and cranked that up, and we were all boogieing along to Invisible Touch. Of course, then the teacher came back in the room and wanted to confiscate my VersaBraille. I said, you can't possibly confiscate my VersaBraille because then I wouldn't be able to do any work. So, you know, he was in a real dilemma. Did you find, prior to getting a VersaBraille, that your writing was halting and stilted because... The price of making an error when using a Perkins was really high. We had this protocol where if you made a mistake with your Perkins Braille, you were allowed to cross out the mistake. And by crossing it out, what you would do is you would go back and you would write four signs over it. And that was allowed. So that did give me a bit of freedom in that regard. Where I really came a cropper was the, was the typing stuff. I'd be typing something at home and... One of my friends would call on the phone or there'd be something really interesting happening on the radio. And, of course, then I would forget what the last thing I typed was. And the only way to find out what the last thing you typed was was to call out to a parental or a sibling or something to come and look at the typewriter for you. So I found that very difficult. And not to mention the fact that you were basically doing everything twice. That's right. I suppose it did have its benefits and that you really absorbed the knowledge. But it was... I think it placed a lot of stress on blind kids because we had to work so much harder just to keep up. I mean, the good news is we didn't know any different, right? It would be terrible to go back to that now. But for me, at least, it was a little bit empowering to be able to go from Braille that only blind people or special teachers could read to being able to type. And I remember loving typing uh, cassette labels that I was uh, putting on tapes I gave to friends just because I could do it. Yes. And, you know, I was only using a VersaBraille, what, sort of 35 years ago. So the progress that we have made in such a short time is absolutely staggering. And it makes me wonder what it's going to be like in another 35 years. You know, we really have moved forward so quickly. So from a VersaBraille, you, you intimated that you uh, had, the, had the Apple. Uh, did the Apple see you through undergrad? Uh, yeah, I, I started moving more towards producing with the keynotes for most of my work because I found that a better experience. But Apple was just amazing. Uh, we were able to connect the VersaBraille to the Apple. You had to type, <laughs> it, when you were in Apple Basic, you had to type PR hash three return and then IN hash three. I think because three was the number of the port that we had the VersaBraille connected to. And then that printed everything to the VersaBraille and it also took input from the port. And that way you could braille in from the Versa Braille and you could also read from the computer screen. That was using the terminal overlay of the <laughs> of the Versa Braille. With the Apple, we had Braille Edit and then later we had Braille Edit Express. I remember the excitement when Braille Edit Express or BEX came out and that required a whole 128K of memory. I mean, this is just an insane amount of memory. Uh, and two floppy disk drives. There were games, lots of really cool games like Oregon Trail and Lemonade Stand. And 
when we got the Apple computer at school, which I got first, we got it at school first and then I got my own at home, I just seemed to make it go. And as a result of that, I was kind of the go-to person that the teachers would use whenever a student was having a problem or whenever there was something they couldn't quite work out, they'd bring me in. And the good thing about that, or I thought it was at the time, was that they would um, let me miss out on PE periods, physical education periods, so that I could go in there and help them with the computer stuff. So it was a bit of a cool ruse, really. On, on two levels. You didn't have to do PE, and you got brownie points for knowing this stuff. Yeah. I remember when I eventually split up with the girlfriend who told me to grow up. Obviously, I hadn't quite fulfilled the the, the, the growing upness that she was seeking. And I went into the classroom where the computer was and opened up Apple Basic, and I wrote a little program, and it said 10 print quote this is a bad day quote 20 go to 10 and then i ran <laughs> i ran the program and left <laughs> and so the, the teacher said what why is this thing like scrolling across the screen and how do we stop it <laughs> at, at this point um this was pretty much isolated computers right you weren't connected to anything no but i got my first modem in I think 1986 or very early 1987, and there was a program called Keyterm, and that allowed me to connect to bulletin boards. And I, I remember the very first bulletin board I connected to and getting an account, and that was just amazing. It, it really was. Being able to communicate with people online and play games online, and I eventually got my own phone line installed. I was still at home then. And even started running my own bulletin board. Although the first bulletin board I ran was actually from 9.30 p.m. until 6 a.m. on my mum and dad's line. And that was a disaster because people would call the bulletin board during the day and you get all these squealy modems trying to connect and it it was not popular. Again, you didn't think ahead there on that one. I know. I know I'm (laughs) fallible. Very, very fallible. How did uh, being connected... Uh, make your world larger? Well, one of the interesting things was a lot of the things I'd done in the past were quite blindness-centric. I mean, on the radio, it was no secret that I was a blind person. Online, I didn't really often feel the need to disclose. And so that was a really interesting experience because sometimes you would meet people in real life. It kind of really bond with someone and Amanda and I would have people over for dinner or whatever and then they'd be really surprised gosh you don't sound blind on the bulletin boards and I'm thinking well <laughs> how do you sound blind I think it was just a way of networking really conversing with people the, the really big deal though was two things first I managed to get onto CompuServe which you could connect to via a packet switching network here in New Zealand called Packnet, and it was not cheap. And I was just thrilled when I got on CompuServe and I saw things like the executive news service and I could read newspapers independently for the first time and things like that. My goodness, that was huge. But it also cost a lot of money initially until I got it under control. The other thing was calling overseas and getting onto the particularly the American bulletin boards. And I think the first one I learned about and connected to was Blinklink, which was run by Willie Wilson, who was in Pittsburgh. And I would connect initially with my 2400 board modem and sometimes download things. But that's where I first started to become acquainted with the NFB and sort of blindness literature from the United States And it was a very important thing for me because the New Zealand bulletin boards were first. I didn't really start to seriously use the American ones until quite a bit later, at which point I was sort of recovering from that crisis of confidence that I had experienced. And to discover the very positive perception of blindness from people like Kenneth Jernigan was really transformational for me at that time in my life. I I owe them a lot because it it made me think about my blindness very differently and very positively. Is it simply because they were the people 
talking into your ear at that moment, or that the views expressed by people in New Zealand were radically different at the time? It's the latter. The the NFB has a philosophy of blindness that's quite well formed. And I think that's because of people like Jacobus Timbrook and Kenneth Jernigan really taking time to articulate a worldview on blindness. And not everybody agrees with it. And uh, I don't even agree with all of it uh, as it was at the time, particularly things like um, their opposition then to accessible pedestrian signals and things of that nature. But the whole message that actually your blindness doesn't define you, it's just a characteristic one of many reading about a wide range of people just getting on with their lives, you know, having families, holding down jobs, doing all sorts of interesting things and not letting their blindness hold them back and finding a place where blind people supported one another in a very kind of out there way. I mean, New Zealanders are a relatively retiring, shy kind of people as a rule. So we didn't have that kind of out there, in-your-face philosophy. And it may well have been the saving of me, actually. When you were going to college, were you politically active on in, in the blindness sphere in New Zealand? Yes. I started my political activity in the blindness sphere because in 1986, when I was 17 and old enough to participate— I had become friends with a few people. One was named Terry Small, who worked at the transcription department. And I knew his name because my brother Colin, who's 15 years older than me, would report on and talk about with his friends all the goings-on in the blindness political scene. And there was, at times, some degree of friction between the blindness provider and the blindness consumer movements. And I was aware that... um, Terry Small was one of the key figures in that, and he was involved in the consumer movement, and he worked for the blindness provider. So I thought, well, that's a tricky one. And uh, also Mary Schnackenberg and Clive Lansink, both very important figures in my life at that time, they all sort of coalesced and said, you need to come to one of the meetings of what was then the New Zealand Association of the Blind and Partially Blind. It's kind of like the NFB and ACB equivalent. Um, you need to come to this to this meeting and give something back because you've obviously got the ability and it's time to contribute. And also, Mary and Clive were keen to have me go because they were running a pilot audio information service and they wanted me to broadcast on that. And to do that, I had to go to the um, conference that year, which was in another city. So all this sort of conspired together. And I went along to my first blindness consumer meeting in um, April of 1986 and immediately got embroiled in controversy because I was nominated as a delegate to the conference. And there was a woman who stood up and she said, hang on, this kid's only been in here five minutes and you're nominating him (laughs) to be a delegate. So they had this big discussion about, well, there's no rule that says that you can't be here five minutes and why don't we just put it to the vote? And so I think people voted in favor of me being a delegate, partly because they felt a bit sorry for me being, you know, turning out to my first meeting and being sieged like that. So off to the conference I went. I I had a very early start in the blindness consumer movement. What did it mean to be a delegate? It essentially meant that you voted on behalf of your branch, that you had all expenses paid, including airfare and accommodation to go to the conference, and that you had speaking rights on behalf of your branch. So it was quite a responsibility to give a kid who'd never attended a meeting before. And did you uh, make the news early out, or were you a little lower key than you sometimes are? I think I spoke up. I think I did quite a bit of listening. See, a lot of the people that were at that conference were people that I actually really revered. They were older blind people that I knew about, whose names I had heard who were these sort of leadership figures. And I remember somebody saying at that conference, you know, you you could easily be president of this organization one day. And I'm like, no way, you know, I, I can't imagine ever being able to do that. Uh, so it was, it was really a special experience. And then also to be involved in that pilot radio reading service and be the kind of key 
anchor person sort of doing the links and holding it all together. That was a blast as well. So I'm I'm thinking years here. 86, 87, 88, is that when you were in university? I started university in 1988. So when okay. we did the radio reading service, I was still at high school. So this was so you got involved with the Blindness Association really young, relatively speaking. Yes, and I became president by the time I was 27. So it was a very quick trip. And I suppose I was fortunate that a number of the leaders of the time saw something in me that they wanted to cultivate and took me under their wing. And I'm very grateful for that. And I've tried to return the favor because we have to make sure that the next generation is being prepared to continue on. And they did a fantastic job where I was concerned. And of course, I wish that I had been the president of the blindness organization when I was 17, because I knew everything then. Um, they, they did have to put up with my sort of poorly formed opinions and things, but I, I, learned, I learned an awful lot thanks to them. Did, did, do you feel like they, in some ways, explicitly groomed you, or simply being around and being perceptive uh, allowed you to move forward in your thinking? No, it, it was definitely a, a specific series of things that they did to bring me into the organization and encourage me to participate. And I think that's because that had been a pattern. It, I don't think it's a pattern that's so easy to reproduce now because most kids are mainstreamed and things. But typically what had happened is that budding up-and-coming young consumer leaders had been cultivated by the generation ahead. Um, and that's how the movement grew from strength to strength. So they were merely perpetuating the cycle. In college, to what degree did you learn that you needed to self-advocate for the things you, you needed? I think I'd already learned that lesson <laughs> through high school and various other things. Even early on, I was advocating not only for myself, but for other people. I remember there was a situation where all the kids who lived in at the School for the Blind were complaining about the food. And I was the one who said, why don't we do something about this? And they said, well, what should we do? And I said, well, why don't we have a kind of a hunger strike or, or a food strike where you guys refuse to eat the food that they're preparing in the kitchen at the School for the Blind? And we day students will bring in food to you or give you food at school the next day so that you don't starve. And I thought this was a very practical thing to do to voice our discontent. And we made some pretty big plans in that regard, but then everybody chickened out, which is something I learned over the years, that <laughs> sometimes you just don't have the backing and you've got to, got to resign quietly. But in university, I was a pretty good self-advocate, I think. There was a disability students advice section even then, but I preferred to talk to my own lecturers. I, with the help of Amanda, organized my own readers. We would put posters up on the boards around the campus saying things like, can you read in big friendly letters? And uh, I remember going into the library and saying, listen, it would really help me if I could have an office in the library, just a, a little, a little cubicle uh, away from everyone else where I can work with my readers. And they gave me that. And I had a little roster going of people who would read to me for an hour. And Amanda said to me at the time, just remember, she saw this in a movie, I think. She said, just remember, there are three genders, men, women, and readers. Because if you fall in love with a reader, it's like an old Kenny Rogers song, don't fall in love with a reader. <laughs> if, you, yes. if you fall in love with a reader, then it messes up your schedule. Um, so it was great. You know, I, I did a lot of self-advocacy and I learned a lot. And I probably learned about when I was being overly brash and and when not. So I did a lot of self-advocacy. And I remember feeling quite resentful when one of my lecturers in sociology, it was, went to the disabled student service about my performance or, or something I hadn't handed in or something, instead of talking to me directly. And so I, I 
took that on and said, listen, you know, you wouldn't have that option with any other student. If you've got an issue with the way I'm doing or not doing uh, something, then talk to me. So I was quite happy to do that. You know, and you touched both ends of the continuum. My tendency is to always think about, you know, what what's the quickest way to an immediate solution, which is the self-advocating when you're sitting in a class. But the other end of that, of course, is the thing, you know, like you're tr- you're trying to improve improve matters for the world in general. How do you sort of decide <laughs> which path to take? Because the personal one's usually shorter. I certainly have become more aware over the years that some people don't have the ability or confidence or whatever it is to self-advocate like I do. At the time, I was too young to fully understand that. And my feeling was, we need to teach more self-advocacy skills. And I was involved in the blind consumer movement here in New Zealand by then. But I still think that to some degree. I still think that... um, We have to do as much as we can to make sure that any person with a disability isn't someone for whom things happen to, that as long as you feel like you have choices, that your voice is being heard, then you do feel a degree of empowerment, which is important. But you're right. I mean, there are short-term solutions and then there are systemic things. In a way, I've been faced with that same sort of question when I have worked for Freedom Scientific or or even IRA, especially IRA, actually, because sometimes we use IRA to solve an accessibility issue that really shouldn't need IRA's help. You know, if there's something that's inaccessible on a website and I get an IRA agent to log in and help me to complete that task right here, right now, because it's got to be done, that's the short-term solution, right? But actually, systemically, it needs to be fixed for the long term. What's your thought about readers versus technology? Because I've heard, much to my dismay, that now that everything is supposed to be accessible and available electronically, that most universities don't offer readers by default. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on that topic. Yes, I've had this discussion with younger blind people over the years, I guess we probably have got to the point now where as long as you're receiving texts in forms that are truly searchable and skimmable, then there may be not much of a case for readers anymore. But there is something about the human eye that we still can't emulate. The idea that if you don't specifically know what string you're searching for, the human eye has this knack of being able to scan a page very quickly and pick out a word that's sort of standing out that's relevant to what you're doing. So maybe there is not much of a case for readers anymore, but I think for certain sorts of disciplines, and I would think things like the law or history or politics where you're dealing with a lot of words, there may well be certain cases where it would be handy. See, I was thinking of it more in terms of science or mathematics, where the book's accessible except for the fact that you know, you may have an image that has the formulas, <laughs> you know, something relatively important that you can't do without, yet it's not available to yes, you. Yes, that's a very good point. And that's something that you would think of that I wouldn't because of our sort of different disciplines. But <laughs> yes, that, that that is a really good point. And again, I come back to Ira and my time there and hearing from students who do use Ira exactly for that. So I suppose the question is, what does it mean to have IRA in a university context? Do we need readers if you can just call that assistance up on demand? But I think the answer nevertheless is roughly the same, that there are still certain use cases where the human eye is still of great assistance to have access to. Were you doing uh, radio while you were in university? Was this sort of an, an avocation while you were while you were learning? Yes, I never got involved in student radio at university. The student radio station at my campus was really into the alternative music, and I'm afraid I was not. I was very much into traditional music uh, of of the '60s and '70s, especially, and so I just felt like I didn't fit in. But When I did this thing with going to the radio station, which was called Counties Radio, and doing the Commonwealth Games Midnight to Dawn Shift for them, I then got offered the breakfast show in my third year of full-time study at university. 
And it was a very difficult dilemma for me because I thought, this is where I want to be. You know, this is this is the career I want and I'm being offered this. And so I put my university on hold for one year. I tried to go in and just do one paper on philosophy, which may or may not have been a good idea. <laughs> and uh, in the end, I just couldn't make it work. I just wasn't in a university mindset. So I took a year off, sort of dropped out of all the classes I'd enrolled in to focus on the radio and made a very stern promise to myself that the next year I would go back and I would complete the degree because I only had one more year to do. And so I did go back. By that stage, I was uh, I had moved on mid-year and I was doing a pretty intense current affairs talk show in the breakfast morning drive slot, interviewing a lot of politicians. I had to do a great deal of research to stay on top of that. You know, I was interviewing everybody from the prime minister down. It was a really big gig. And so, yes, in my final year of university, I would get up at about four in the morning and we had a contra deal with a taxi company. <laughs> We'd play ads for the taxi company on my show if they took me to the radio station and then into university after. So I would catch a cab about 4.30 and talk to my producer and work through the morning news and then go on the air at six and do the interviews and finish at nine, jump in a cab and I made sure that I did university lectures that went from about, they started no earlier than 10 and went all the way through until six sometimes. I'd get home, I'd have to do show prep for the next morning, look at what had happened in the news that day, talk to my producer about what interviews she should be setting up. Then doing my um, coursework. So I'd often get to bed about 11, 11.30 and start all over again. <laughs> it was insane. That really is a rigorous schedule because theoretically you have to do the coursework. Yes. Oh, I did the coursework all right. I, I really did well that year. And what was quite ironic was there was a lot going down at that time in Russia. Uh, we were we were looking – I think that was about the time when um, Gorbachev was uh, uh, facing a, a coup attempt and all sorts of things like that. And so I would often be interviewing my lecturers, you know, in political science at university, and I'd get them, and and uh, I'd be talking to them while the ads were playing, and saying, you know, morning, professor, you're coming up in about sixty seconds, and they'd say, well, yes, well, while we wait, I've just got that assignment you said. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Uh, That's but really I mean, funny. it was really rigorous. Um, it was stupid, really, but but it worked, you know, and 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 I was thriving on it. I had the energy to do it then, and. Um, uh, just just loved every minute of it. Asking the questions you want answered. Jonathan Mosen on AKL 1476. 21.5 to 9, news top of the hour at 9 o'clock. In our news over recent days, indeed recent months now, discussion over superannuation, the future of it. 2,800 people gathered at the Auckland Town Hall on Monday to hear, among others, former Prime Minister and architect of the current superannuation scheme, Sir Robert Muldoon, speak about the future of what is now known as the GRI. Sir Robert joins us on the line from Parliament. Good morning. Good morning. Ruth Richardson says that the scheme is unsustainable. Why is she wrong? Well, she's been badly advised and... Uh She's been badly advised on a lot of things recently. That seems like an amazingly fast rise to power on the radio. A, you got the morning shot, not only at one station, but at a second one within six months. Yeah. Was that unusual back then? Yeah, it was unusual. And I like to think it's because I put the work in and was always looking for new opportunities. It's a blessing and a curse. I remember... I was working, the second radio station where I was doing the current affairs gig, I was working for a radio station that was run by the airport company. In New Zealand in those days, we've already talked about how we applied to the broadcasting tribunal for a, a license to run a station from the School for the Blind. By the time I started working in radio full time, 
radio and pretty much everything that lived and breathed in this country had been completely deregulated. And so instead of having to apply for a license to broadcast and justify the good to the community or the, the need that hadn't been met elsewhere, basically frequencies were being bought and sold to the highest bidder. And it was just crazy. It was like a sort of a gold rush thing. So the airport company bought a frequency and they decided they would do this um, this radio station that did more than flight information. It would kind of be news and business and, you know, a little bit of music thrown in sometimes. And that's where I was doing breakfast. And I remember the chief executive of the airport company at some party or function or other took me to one side because he knew I was sort of looking for other opportunities. And he said, you know, you've got to watch this, Jonathan. You've got a lot of capabilities, but it's okay to sort of rest on the mountaintop you're on for a while before trying to climb the next highest mountain. But I think that that's a, that's a fair comment. I'm pretty driven in that regard. Yes. And, and he was probably not the most objective, given that he most likely wanted you to stay at his station yeah, for a no, while. But I mean, I do think that that's a fair comment. I, especially in those days, I don't know, maybe still, I was really driven, just wanting to make sure that I was using my skills to the max, but also that I was given a new challenge to keep me interested. I love to build things. I really do. I, li- I like creating things, but I'm I'm always interested in, in extending myself. What were the mechanics of you doing the uh, the morning show? I'm thinking, number one, all the prep you had to do and presumably all the reading you had to do. I was pretty well looked after, actually, by the manager of the radio station where I was doing the current affairs show. He had a lot of confidence in me, and the blindness thing just never came up. There were some mechanical things, like in those days, everything was on cart. And for those who aren't radio people, cart or cartridges were these little loops of tape. Actually, weren't that little. They were sort of these bulky cassettes. And ads and other material were recorded onto these. And so every so often we'd have new ads or new things that I had to work with, new inserts. And I would make sure that I had time scheduled and they did provide me with assistance to label those cards. I did have a printer, a Braille printer. And that was pretty useful at the time. I didn't have access to a refreshable Braille display then. So if I needed to read something on the air, like you know, some, some breaking news story or something, then they could print that material out on a Braille embosser and bring it into the studio. I was actually on the air on County's radio at the end of 1990, early 1991, when the Gulf War broke out. Yeah, early, early 91. And that was wow. just quite something to be telling people that that was happening in real time. Do you feel like you faced any discrimination at these at these stations? No, not at the stations that took me on. The biggest problems I would face was the ops people, the people who actually managed the equipment, because they would say, well, you may have done whatever you've done in these other places, but there's no way you could work my gear. It was more to do with how can you actually logistically do what you do? How do you know what buttons to press and how are you going to tell when you're timing out to the top of the hour? And it was funny little things like that, because clearly if they give me a chance and get me into their office, they know I can talk their head off. <laughs> that wasn't the issue. You didn't even have to be in yeah, the office. That's right. Yeah. Cool. I may have faced some discrimination in gigs on the radio that I didn't get, but usually I would win people over. And I mean, you know, that that time I was telling you about where I volunteered to do the mid-dawn that really got me started on my full-time radio career. The guy who managed the studio technically was really grumpy about this. Uh, He was super grumpy. He did not want a blind person in there fooling around with his gear. He actually came in, I think, on the first midnight to dawn shift I did. And for an hour or so was hovering behind me, which was awful because I was so damn nervous, having never really done anything quite like this before. And he's there hovering behind me while I'm trying to do the radio thing. But in the end, he became one of my biggest champions because just by virtue of the quality of the work that I was doing, I won him over. The fact that you were revealing news as it was printed out for you brings to mind the fact that you had to be a good 
Braille Reader and Braille Reader Aloud. Did you actively work to make sure you could do that? Yes. I wanted to work in radio for as young as I can remember. And I decided, even when I was a kid, that if I was going to do that, I would need to be a good Braille reader. So I would get books and practice in my bedroom, just reading out loud to gain that kind of fluency. And we didn't have the internet or all this connectivity to bring people together. You know, you can't just jump on a site like, say, AFB, Career Connect, and find out if another blind person is doing this thing. So I heard these great stories about a couple of blind brokers. Oh, there is a blind guy doing radio in such and such a country. And that would inspire me. But yeah, I would spend time reading Braille until I could get to the point where you could give me some Braille and I could read it pretty fluently. What about the the situation where you have a word that it takes a while for your brain to figure out, what is this? How do you how do you do that and and not fall behind? Well, I can't say I've been perfect in that regard, so I have had some fluffs like that. But if at all possible, it's always good to pre-read something, and sighted people do that too. Um, a, a sighted newsreader will will try and do a a pre-read. But the other thing I do to try and guard against it is I do have a buffer. My brain is processing further ahead from what I'm speaking. It's like this kind of mental buffer that I've developed, which allows me a little bit of time. If I do get stuck on a word and I need to really examine it further, the buffer means that I'm still talking while I'm deciphering what the word is. That's got to be a learned skill. That does not feel uh, natural out of the box. And it's certainly something I've not mastered. Well, apparently it is a bit rare. Uh, I remember getting up and giving a a red speech at an ACB convention and um, somebody who I really respect said to me, you are the most, one of the most amazing brow readers I've ever seen. So, I mean, but it it took a lot of practice. It's just something I got quite obsessive about. And I, I did two things when I was a kid. I did that braille thing where I would just practice reading aloud. And I wasn't short of an audience. I mean, my siblings, my older siblings were happy to hear me read. But the other thing I also used to do was um, I would listen to the 8.30 news on 1YA, as it was called then, the national program. I had an 8.30 p.m. news bulletin, and I would listen to the news through an earphone and repeat it back onto a tape recorder. And um, I was really interested long, long after that on an FS cast when I interviewed a woman called Nas Campanella, who is a newscaster in Australia doing a a range of journalism things. And she does exactly this because she's got a, a condition that prevents her from reading Braille. And so she would have eloquence talking in her headphones at just the right speed for her. And she would just speak back what eloquence was saying. So I said, people are doing that too. I thought that was really unique. And then I found out that a guy named Ed Walker, who worked as Willard Scott's partner in D.C., uh, did it. And Hal Knight, who worked for Freedom uh, doing sales, but before that was in radio, also uh, mastered that that, that technique. Yes, that's amazing. I suppose interpreters do that too when they're listening and translating, which is even more of a skill, I guess. But yeah, so I, I... I did the range of of things like that, which did come in handy later when, you, when you're trying to listen to a feed coming down, you know, like a countdown to a news bulletin or something coming down your headphones in queue while you're still trying to get some patter out. So it was all useful stuff. So before you had a Braille display, how did you uh, talk up to the, the top of the hour? Well, I had one of those old, sharp talking times, and it was one of my most precious possessions. So at the beginning of a radio show, say at 6am when I did my first network news bulletin, I would start the stopwatch thing on exactly the last pip, because we have pips in New Zealand, of uh, 6am. So I knew that I was exactly on time. And that way I could push the little button on the sharp talking clock and it would say, you know, 38 minutes, 22 seconds elapsed. In its little voice, 38 minutes, 22 seconds, perhaps. And that way, when I uh, was getting close to the news, I could turn the mic off and push that button and hear exactly to the second how we were doing. So you couldn't do it if you were talking. I was trying to figure out how you could do it and talk up to the 
the time. You that wouldn't have worked without hearing the clock. No. So what you what you could do is I got pretty good though at tapping seconds. I, so even if I had to hear say seventy five seconds before I had something had to happen, I could usually time it about right. But also we used to take network news bulletins, and they have countdowns that come through your headphones in queue, basically, you know, 30 seconds to the latest independent radio news bulletin, and then they would count it down, and then uh, you, you could bring up the fader. So there were, there were strategies around all of that. So what, what else in your, uh, your sort of whirlwind radio career is, uh, is interesting to talk about that we've not covered conceptually thus far? They brought in some new management because radio was changing up and down the dial. Sometimes one radio station would literally move frequencies overnight. It was just the Wild West, you know, not a good time to start a radio career. And they brought in this new management for the uh, airport station, and they decided that what they would really like me to do is to move to uh, the 8 till midnight slot and do a four-hour kind of more traditional call-in show where we would talk about the issues of the day and maybe some lighter topics and people would phone in and and discuss them. 275-1476, good evening. Yes, hi. Hello. Hi, I'm ringing up about your talk line. Um, yeah. I'd like to discuss issue on social welfare. Right. Uh, I do have something that I would like to say to the people that are listening to the program. Yes, I remember now when you called last night, did you hear a lot of the reaction that we had? Yes, I certainly did. Did it make you feel um, like you're in good company? Well, it actually opened my eyes quite a bit to what I've experienced. Yeah. Um, I'm a mother of a child. Yes. And she's now 16 years old. So I said to them, you know, you can move me wherever you want. But if you do that, remember that this radio station has never done a talk show like this before. There used to be music in that slot before. If you want people to call in, you're going to have to uh, acquire the audience that is inclined to call in. Because right now you've got a passive music listening audience. Yes. And for the people who do want to call in, they're listening to other things. So they promised me, okay, um, you know, what, what we'll do is we'll capitalize on the fact that you're a well-known name in Auckland and that now you've got a talk show of your own, having done this thing as a kid. That's a good angle. And we'll advertise it, you know, in the papers and things like that. Well, they never did any of that. And so then when I switched to the eight to midnight slot, full of enthusiasm and great things to talk about, not many people called in, you know, because there wasn't. Really it's hard doing a talk show when no one calls. It really is awful. Yeah, so I, I did this for a while, and then they decided that uh, it, it wasn't working out. And I said, well, you know, are you really surprised? Because we don't, we don't have that audience. So they decided that they were going to um, move me to weekends. And at that point, I said, oh, yeah, this is actually what we call in New Zealand and, and other countries constructive dismissal, because you've changed the game on me and haven't really supported me in this. So I'm going to take some legal action. And they got very mean to me. Mean to me. Imagine that. And they <laughs> said, and they said, if you do this, you'll never work in radio again because you'll have a reputation for being a troublemaker. And I sort of said, well, we'll, we'll, we'll take that chance, I think. And so I got a payout from them uh, as a result of uh, taking them to the cleaners under uh, the employment court law in New Zealand and then did, in fact, work at another radio station. But it was a very different gig. It was a kind of a an oldies station, which I really enjoyed. Um, it was music radio and, and I loved every minute of that. But it just goes to show that while you do have to pick your battles, you can't be a doormat either. So before we leave uh, that initial phase when you were doing interviewing, how did you learn to do it? Because as, as we both know, it's not something that just completely comes naturally. I was very lucky. When Radio Enterprise was on, I invited Paul Holmes, who was the premier current affairs broadcaster of that time, to come and do a show. And I said to him, let's do Turnabout. So I'll interview you for an hour about your career and things, and then you interview me about blindness and, you know, can blind people work in radio and things for the other hour. And it was just amazing um, have, having someone of his caliber. I, I deeply respected him uh, work with me, and we kind of got to know each other a little bit 
and um, one he he would give me advice. And one of the things he he said to me that's always stuck with me is, you can only do this job if you have a genuine interest in other people. If there's one thing that people can't help stopping and overhearing, it's an intimate conversation. And never be afraid to allow a little bit of silence to go by because generally the guest feels an obligation to fill it and then you get the information that you otherwise would not have got. And that combination of advice really stood me in good stead and I think I, I just took naturally to it. I I liked coaxing information out and sometimes in the New Zealand and Australian and British cultures, we are much more aggressive as a rule to our politicians than America is. America is actually usually quite differential when they have politicians on and they're interviewing them. We are not like that. Politicians are the servants of the people and we're going to hold them to account. Oh, yes, we are. So some of my interviews were very aggressive, but some of them were also probing in a delicate kind of way and just letting it teasing out the information. But I, I did have a frustrated politician say to me one day on the air, because sometimes my youth would come up, you know, what is this guy who is so young doing on here? And he said to me on the air, the trouble with you, Jonathan, is you're far too cynical. It's about time you listened to Joan Baez and had some dreams. <laughs> <laughs> and did you find that you were cynical? Did, did you find over time that you became more or less cynical? I was very cynical at the time. And the reason for that was that I really did live and breathe politics. So... My cynicism was born out of what was happening in New Zealand at the time. In the mid-1980s, we had a very regulated economy to the point that, for goodness sake, our first commercial FM radio station didn't start until 1983. We didn't have FM before then. Absolutely ridiculous. And we were almost like a Soviet-style economy. I mean, not quite, but it was really regulated in this country. And then we elected a left-of-centre government, and they just completely turned New Zealand on its head. They had some people there who had travelled and um, subscribed to the whole Milton Friedman school of thought about just deregulating everything and letting the market take care of itself. And then we got a national right-of-centre government back again that basically made it even uh, more uh, deregulated. They They tackled sacred cows like health and trying to put cash registers in hospitals, which is something we don't want in this country. So that's the era that I was doing this work in. So I was very cynical because, as was a lot of the public, because successive governments had betrayed the voters who put them there and given and de delivered an agenda that nobody knew they were going to deliver. And so I felt it was my job to point that out and hold these politicians to account for their behavior. When Jonathan and I continue our conversation, we'll hear about the challenges he faced becoming a parent for the first time, hear stories from his four kids about their lives together, and Jonathan talks about some of the legislation about which he's most proud that he worked on as manager of government relations for the Foundation for the Blind in New Zealand. Those things and more upcoming on episode four of In the Arena, the Jonathan Mosen story. I'm Glenn Gordon.